0: I'd like you to look on the screen and tell me what you think these numbers have in common. They each represent a date when a significant Christian leader predicted Jesus was going to come back. (laughs) Some of them we're very familiar with. This uh, picture over here, the rapture in 1992, was all over mall parking lot poles in Chelmsford, Massachusetts, where I lived at the time. These are more recent with the... uh, Harold Camping fiasco, but they really represent a long and stupid tradition (laughs) that goes back since the first century of the church. In fact, I found a website that documents well over 200 events where Christian leaders said, I've cracked the code. That's rapture fever, thinking we've got to crack the code. That's why all that imagery, all that symbolism's there. It's given to keep us busy while we're waiting for Jesus to come. Try to figure it all out. But here's the problem with that notion. And it's amazing when you think about how simple Jesus' words are about this. This is what Jesus said, let's say it together. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Think about this, Jesus was saying that even though he was God, he had surrendered certain authority as God become man and even he didn't know even as he taught about the signs of the times not for us to figure out some dates it was never his intention in Acts 1 which we're going to read in just a few moments they ask him when is your kingdom is it going to come now how many of you know what he says he says it is not for you to know the hour or the day that the father has set aside but you are to be busy Your job is to go and be witnesses in all the world. Somehow, we have screwed that up. Why is that? Because I think we're arrogant, we're proud, but I think also we love a good mystery. (laughs) We love to solve things. We'd rather know. Now, I grew up in the mid-'70s, early-'70s. That was my coming-of-age period. And during that time, there was a huge emphasis on the rapture. Uh, There was this movie called A Thief in the Night, and it depicted a very popular view of the events that will occur around the coming of christ that has been common in the united states and most of you probably if i were to ask you what you think will happen will reflect that view but interestingly that point of view only emerged in the 1830s it's a very young idea but i grew up in those circles there was a guy named harold Lindsay that had written the late great planet earth that was huge looking at the signs of the times. and Boy, it was hard to argue with everything that he was saying that that's exactly what Jesus said would be happening. And in particular, the reason why in the 70s and early 80s it was a big deal was because Israel had become a nation again in the late 1940s. Many referenced the teaching in Scripture that said the generation that sees that will not pass away before the coming of the Lord. And Harold had this idea that the generation is roughly 33 years. Made a prediction it would be in the early 1980s. We used to have prophecy conferences at my church. They'd go through all the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. We had these big charts of the 70 weeks of Daniel, like a big clock that had stopped with one week left. So as a teenage kid, coming of age, even though I'd been raised in the church, I had lots of questions. And I tended to think that my doubts and my questions meant that I didn't have faith and belief. I mean, could you have both? I've since learned, of course, you have both. That's what faith is. Faith is believing in the presence of doubt. At the time, I didn't get that. And so, when everybody talked about this idea that Jesus could come, I remember my dad would routinely say, Jesus could come before this service is over. Are you ready? And in my mind, I was scared to death. Scared to death. We used to go up to this place called Days of Decision Bible Conference. And um, one year, we were up there as a family singing. We were the special music for the week, and it was Prophecy Week. I'm getting a morning and evening download of the same stuff that I'm most fearful of. I remember in the middle of the afternoon, halfway through the week, I was working on staff, and I had done a security shift overnight, so I went to take a nap, and I woke up, and all around me was silent. Nobody on my floor. (laughs) You're with me already, aren't you? Now, this is a conference ground full of Christians, so I kind of stick my head out my room in the hallway. It was one of these old inns. Had this long hallway with doors all the way down and one window at the end, and I'm going, no, no, this couldn't, no. So I remember that walk, and I remember the walls kind of doing this as (laughs) as I'm walking towards that window, because that window oversees the whole recreational area. And every afternoon, they were out there. They were always playing softball. There was a beautiful pool. People were always there. I go walking out. There is nobody in the playing fields. And what made it worse was the bat was sort of laying at home plate. (laughs) And there was a mitt at first base. I look over towards the pool. There's nobody there. I got to tell you, I got in the elevator from the top floor where the staff lived and went down longest ride of my life. I come out into the lobby. Nobody's in the lobby. There's one girl behind the desk, and I always thought if anybody was going to get left behind, it would be her. (laughs) I must have been white as a ghost. She said, what's wrong? I said, where is everybody? She said, oh, it's that afternoon Q&A that they're having over in the meeting hall. So I walked over to the meeting hall and finally when I saw my dad standing up and debating some finer point of the pre-tribulational rapture position, I knew I was still good. (laughs) For now. (laughs) I don't mean to discredit those who study these end times. We need to be formed. We should study. And I do have a point of view about the timeline of things that will happen after the return of Christ. I do have that but I've since not lost myself in it. And I'm probably part of that side of the church that doesn't talk about it enough. That's probably just as bad. Because the writers of this great creed that we're studying to help us understand what it is that we are to believe, the irreducible minimum of the Christian faith, help us understand that the story of Jesus does not end until this is concluded, He will come again to judge the living and the dead. So as Christians, we need to understand this, and it needs to impact our lives. This is an immense subject, 300 verses in the New Testament alone, hundreds more verses in the Old Testament, and that's why it is so convoluted, it's why there are so many points of view. but. This was written long before the ideas that we now think of when we have our debates about the end times. This was written in ancient times. And so what I want to do is try to recover that part of the return of Jesus that all Christians are to hold to and to believe. And then recognize that there's a lot around that, that there's a reason why the Bible isn't clear, and therefore we should call them our view, and we should have an opinion, but we should be humble about those. But what is it that we should have conviction about? That's what we're going to work on today. We're going to talk about the basics of Christ's return, what will happen after Christ returns that we all believe, no matter what our view, on particular timelines and events. And then we're going to talk about why that should matter for us here today. And then someday, if you want to get into a interesting conversation with me about the secondary stuff. i would be happy to have that conversation with you. Let's start by looking at where this idea of Christ's coming comes from. It comes from Jesus himself. Jesus spoke a lot about his return. This is the one we most often think of John 14. I am going to prepare a place for you and I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. This great promise, on the last night he was with his disciples before he was arrested and crucified, and it is not a new idea, it's a reminder, because he has been talking about it significantly throughout. And if we were just to look at the return of Jesus through his own teaching, in other words, if we didn't look at the book of Revelation and Daniel and try to interpret all the allegory and symbolism... And if we, for a moment, just set aside what the apostles teach, if you just look at what Jesus said about his coming, this is essentially what the creed covers. Jesus is basically saying, I'm going to come back, and I'm going to judge. I'm going to come back, I'm going to come back as judge. So be ready. Let's look at four significant passages of Scripture. Now, because of how these passages unfold, I'm going to do something different to how we normally uh, work through a sermon. I'm going to read with you all four of those passages right now. And then from those, we're going to draw out basic ideas about the return of Jesus. The first one is Matthew chapter 25, so turn there with me. This is Jesus' own teaching. Matthew chapter 25, I'm going to begin reading at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire. I tell you the truth, whatever you did not for one of the least of these, you did not do for me, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. We're going to go forward now, again, the words of Christ, but this time in the first chapter of Acts. This now, his parting words before he ascended. Lou did a fantastic job last week helping us understand the ascension of Christ and the beginning of his reign. But this is just before that. Let's uh, begin at verse 4. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, listen, here it is, it is not for you to know the times or dates. So can we settle that right now? Can we just get that clear? It's not for us to know. The Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and the cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside him. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Pay attention. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Now, two passages from the apostolic letters, the epistles. The first is 1 Thessalonians chapter four. One of the very first churches to have a rapture fever scare was the church at Thessalonica. They thought that Jesus had come somewhere around 53 AD and thought they had missed it. And so Paul writes details about the coming of Christ. So we're going to be at 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, I grew up as a Baptist, and we used to say the Presbyterians will be the first raptured because the Bible says the dead in Christ will rise first. And what we didn't know is that the Pentecostals were making that same joke about the Baptists. (laughs) Where am I? The dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. And now turn with me to 2 Peter. We're moving increasingly towards the back of the Bible, and before we're done, we'll be at the end of the book of Revelation today. But we're just for now, we're going to stop at 2 Peter Chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading at verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, "'Scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. "'They will say, where is this coming?' He promised. "'Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. "'But they deliberately forget that long ago by God's word the heavens existed "'and the earth was formed out of water and by water. "'By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed.'" By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. You see, the Lord is not slow in keeping this promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you because he doesn't want anyone to perish. But he wants everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And we're going to stop there. We'll, we'll read the rest as we, uh, as we come to the end. So here we have four significant passages that help us understand several things. If you were to say, what should every Christian at all times understand that the Bible clearly teaches about the coming of Jesus, these three things rise to the top. First, Jesus will return physically, in glory, and without warning. That was the clear teaching of Jesus, and that's the clear teaching of the apostles. Let's take those words apart. He will return physically. This same Jesus that you have touched, that you have been with, that you have seen go into heaven. Last week, Lou helped us understand that Jesus, when he went to heaven, did not go back to his pre-incarnate state, that his body was glorified, and he went to heaven. It's that Christ, Still God and man, but now in his glorified form, who will return. The same Jesus that in Revelation chapter one, when John is caught up in a vision, he turns around and he sees him, and he's so blown away by him, he's slain. That Jesus is going to come. He's gonna come physically, And he's going to come in glory. And he's going to come without warning, like a thief in the night. Uh, Scripture says there will be people working in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Just this whole idea that you just don't know, but it's going to come without warning. Secondly, this could happen at any time. The word we use is imminent. There is nothing that Scripture says needs to take place And therefore we say, we're waiting for that to happen, then we'll know Jesus is coming. The writers of the New Testament clearly believed Jesus could come at any time. Why do you think they greeted each other with maranatha? So everything they teach about the coming of Christ should be interpreted through that assumption. So you might say, well, wait a minute, doesn't Jesus say consider the times. Watch the signs. There will be wars and rumors of wars. Nations will rise against nations. It talks about all these different things. And it says, when you see these signs, remember my coming. Now, why did every one of these people, in those dates I had on the screen, put them up again, Cody, for a minute. Why do you think, going all the way back to 53 A.D., Every one of them thought Jesus was coming. You know why? Because they looked at the times around them and said, that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. What's the point? Listen to me. The signs are always with us. They're always with us. How do we know we're in the last days? Because Peter said we're in the last days in Acts 2. The last days have started since the inauguration of the church, and the signs have been with us throughout all of the last days. So what did Jesus really intend? He's saying we keep our eye on the signs that remind us that the work of Christ is not finished. And he's gonna come at any time and finish his work. So we keep our eyes on the signs so we remember the coming. We keep our eyes on the signs so we remember that we have work to do. The signs are not to help us solve the conundrum. The signs are to motivate us and make us ready, keeping our eyes on the fact that the world is still broken. Nations still rise against nation. There are still earthquakes and famines. Not just is humanity still broken, but the earth itself is waiting to become new. And we are to be a part of bringing that new creation to the world around us. Does that make sense to you? That's why we watch the signs, and we remember that because those signs are there, and they've always been with us, God could come at any time. Third, Christ's coming will bring an end to this present age and bring a commencement of the age to come, which means that what God is doing right now will come to an end. Right now, this is the gospel age. Jesus sent us out into all the world to bring the gospel, to make disciples of every nation. We know, according to what Peter taught, the reason why Jesus hasn't come is because he wants as many people as possible to hear that message. He's not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So he is patient. So he's lingering because we're supposed to be doing our job. And there will be a time When that opportunity ends, our opportunity to share Christ with the world around us, starting with your friends and family, and their opportunity to profess Christ as their Savior, that ends with the coming of Christ. And the next stage of the recreation of everything commences. So, those are the three primary things around Christ's return. Jesus will return physically in glory and without warning. It could happen at any time. This present age will end. The age to come will commence. Now, what will happen when Jesus comes? Now, this is where we might drift into these questions. Will there be a tribulation? Will Christians go through the tribulation or part of the tribulation? Will there be a real thousand-year reign of Christ? And what about this battle of Armageddon? But that isn't the priority of Scripture's teaching, no matter what your view, whether you're a historic premillennialist, a dispensational premillennialist, an amillennialist, a postmillennialist, or a pan-tribulationist, which means you believe it'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> Whatever your point of view, there are three primary things that we're just going to quickly look at. Let me list them and then I'll take some time and talk about them. There's the resurrection, there's the judgment, and there's the new heaven and the new earth. And what I want to do now is take you to the book of Revelation, and we're going to be in chapter 20. I'm going to begin reading at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, earth and sky fled from his presence. There was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were open, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. Keep your thumb there because we're going to continue in just a few minutes. But this section helps us understand two key things that will happen when Christ returns. First is the resurrection the resurrection. As we read in the previous passages, the dead in Christ will rise first and then those of us who are still alive will be caught up to be with them. But a more broad look at the resurrection, not just the promise for believers, is that that will happen ultimately to everyone. All of the dead, the sea, the earth will give up their dead. That's why we embalm bodies and try to preserve them. It's it's the tradition of waiting for the resurrection. I got to tell you, I've told my family to Turn me into ashes and sprinkle me on our favorite lake. I don't want them to spend money on a gravesite for me because God doesn't need that to raise me. Doesn't matter. Somehow, everyone will be physically resurrected. So the dead will rise and the living will be gathered when Christ returns. Secondly, there will be judgment. Now, some would teach that Christians will not face judgment. Some teach that there are two different judgments. There is the great white throne judgment here for the rest of the world. Then for Christians, there is the judgment seat of Christ. Now, here is where I want to profess a particular point of view that I think is important. I don't believe Scripture supports that. I think that comes out of this dispensational point of view that's roughly 180 years old. Scripture is very clear. When the day of the Lord comes... Christ will actually be the judge of all mankind. Two verses, Matthew 16, 27, say it with me. The Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with the angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul says, and let's say this together, we must all stand before Christ to be judged, Each receive whatever we deserve for the good and evil we have done. Don't you see the similarity between that and what we've just read? Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled away from his presence. We understand that that's Christ because he says, I'm coming to judge. Listen to me. Christ will judge the nations. You as a Christian, believe it or not, will face a judgment. That's startling for some of us because we understand that we're saved by grace alone. And we're a little thrown by this idea. If it says we're going to get what we deserve, whether we're righteous or unrighteous, how does that square with the clear teaching in the Bible that I can't earn my way to heaven? It's about me being forgiven in Christ. It's about grace. It's about faith. Well, John's vision helps us square this up. Let's read it again. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Now you say, Tom, how is this possible? I'm in Christ. It goes on and says, whoever's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into eternal judgment. So here is what John's describing. All of us will stand before Christ. The books will be opened. Some will stand before Christ as unrighteous because they have never made their peace with God. And they will stand under the weight of their own record. And if that's you today, you will be found guilty as charged. Others of us will stand before Christ and our deeds will be brought before us. But because we are in Christ, There's another book. And our name will be found in it because our faith in Christ makes us righteous even though our actions prove we are otherwise altogether unrighteous. How could he reward the righteous when there is none righteous, no, not one? Because God imputed his righteousness on us. God made him who knew no sin, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to become sin for us so that in him we might become the very righteousness of God. How will he reward anyone who's righteous? Because we've become that in Christ. Otherwise, we are all worthy of death. So there'll be judgment. But that judgment for Christians will be a reminder of the glorious grace of Christ. That's why it says he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be tears. But God will wipe them away. And we will be welcomed. He says, then the righteous will shine. And the unrighteous will be cast out. It's a very sobering dividing line. And I think that's why, as churches today, so few of us are willing to go there very often. Because. We know that some of you haven't crossed that line. And what we're saying to you very clearly, because Jesus said it, and because Scripture says it, if you have not made your peace with God, and if Jesus were to come today because he can come at any time, you will stand before him as unrighteous, and you will perish. But if you come to Christ today, your name will be in that book, and you will stand. See, that's a great hope that's ours. Let me now move on and talk about the third thing, a new heaven and a new earth. John goes on. His vision continues. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully blessed for her husband. who makes everything new? Christ. And he is the one who was seated on the throne as judge. Do you see it? I am making all things new. And then he said, write this down, put it in ink, for these words are trustworthy and true. Ultimately, that is what everything is moving towards the glorious reboot of creation. We could spend time talking about whether it's a complete consuming of the earth or a recreation of the earth. I believe it's a recreation by fire or whatever means God chooses to use, just like he recreates us. My body didn't disappear when I accepted Christ, but I am a new creation in him. And someday when I die, this very corruptible will put on incorruptible. This very thing that is mortal will take on immortality. It's that same thing that will happen to the earth. It will also pass through judgment in a sense. But it will emerge as pure and righteous. And that's why we can say whether in heaven or on earth, the dwelling place of God is now with man. That was always the intent. That's what the garden established as the goal. And that's what all of human history has worked us to because in spite of our falling away, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our disbelief, God has been faithful to that goal since he said, let there be light. So how do we respond to this? Well, there's four very simple things that come out of these different passages. The first is we need to encourage each other. That's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4. With the reality of the hope of this resurrection that's coming, encourage one another, build each other's hope. I think that's what the early church got at when they said, Maranatha! They're encouraging each other to stay faithful and to be filled with hope because Christ is coming. Maranatha, encourage one another. Push each other forward because we know Christ is going to come and we know in the end. You know, the ultimate statement of uh, end times theology is two words we win. Or better yet, Christ wins and we win with him. So we encourage one another. Second, we need to share the good news. <laughs> Acts 1. What did Jesus say when they said, are you coming now? He said, your job isn't to figure that out. Your job right now is to be my witnesses everywhere. So go do it. Our job is to be sharing the gospel up until the last possible minute so that every possible person who would believe in him and who would hear the gospel would be saved. And then we have these in Peter's writings. I'll just close with this, then we'll move into communion. Peter, after talking about the day of the Lord coming, asked this question Since all of this will happen, what kind of people ought you to be? Then he answers it You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Let me just push forward to verse 14. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that the Lord's patience means salvation. His patience in coming means salvation. So the third, we need to be living godly lives You never know when how you're living right now is how you'll meet your maker. You just never know that. Make every effort to be found spotless, live a godly life. But then fourth, and perhaps most significant for some here today, we need to make our peace with God. The fact that we've lost this rapture fever, and appropriately so, also means that when we share the gospel, we don't help people understand the urgency of it. And some of you here have been considering the gospel. Maybe you've been at our uh, Exploring Christianity study and you've been exploring it then. Some of you have been sitting here listening, taking in for a long time. You've been hearing the gospel and you're timing your decision about it with your lifeline in mind. Do you understand today? That's not how you need to time it. (laughs) That's why scripture says today is the day of salvation. Maranatha, our Lord comes. Are you ready now? Can you make peace with Him? Confess your sin. Receive His forgiveness. Become His child. Get your name in that book so that you can join in that great statement at the end of the book of Revelation. This is how Revelation ends. One chapter later. Say it with me. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come. Lord Jesus, can you say that? As your heart is, as your life is right now, can you say amen? Come, Lord Jesus. Amen means I agree with that. I'm ready. I'm for it. Can you say that? As a Christian, what priority, what habit, what sin, what discretion is continuing in your life that would not be found pure and honorable and godly at his coming? What do you need to confess? And if you're here and you've been searching and struggling with the reality of Christ, can I encourage you to make that commitment now? You may say, well, I still have questions. I've got all sorts of issues. Yeah, you'll always have issues. Trust me, I've got issues. I've got questions. That's why it's called faith. Take a step. Commit your life to Jesus Christ. Receive His grace and forgiveness. And as you come and partake of the Lord's table, remind yourself of what makes that forgiveness possible. His body broken for you. His blood shed for you. It's Christ's great gift to us to remember what puts us in that book of life. The means by which we have been made righteous through His sacrifice for us. Make that commitment. Confess that sin. And then come and participate and remember the grace of God that is ours. Father, as we come to the table, we rejoice in the hope that is ours. And my heart cries out. Maranatha, thank you for this table that we now celebrate. In Jesus' name, amen.